You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. How about that, huh? Hey, great to be with you all today. Welcome everybody online and Mosaic South as well, which is joining us today via video. What's up, Mosaic South? It's going great down there. Uh, Before we get going, one more thing. Just want to take a moment and acknowledge that, yes, this is February. That means it's Black History Month here in the U.S. And so in light of that, yeah, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the significant contributions of black Americans to this nation, to the church of Jesus, to this church, and to my life. We would not be who we are. I would not be who I am without you. So thank you. Bless you today, yeah. Um, And so as a a pastor, as a pastor, I arrive every once in a while at a crossroads. And that's where we are today. On one hand, this has been my experience. There are three topics that I preach about that get more positive feedback than any other. Three topics, more than any other people come up to me and thank me for in the moment and then come back sometimes months even years later, and thank me for, and these three topics are, number one, marriage and singleness, kind of lumping those together, marriage and singleness, sex, and then, believe it or not, money. Yeah, money. Over a number of years of preaching and pastoral ministry, some of the most sincere, heartfelt, thank you for that, Morgan, messages are around money. And yet, on the other hand, I know that this topic, a topic of money and possessions, has been abused by some beyond all recognition. Kind of like an MMA fighter after a really bad fight. Like you recognize that once upon a time, there was something recognizable there, but it's just taken such a beating, you can't even recognize it anymore. So, what to do? What to do at the crossroads? The answer is, I hope, be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful to the Christian scriptures and story, which talk an awful lot about money and possessions. And be faithful to you, to this local church, because without vision, teaching, leadership, we can all tend to fall along cultural lines or into cultural traps when it comes to our stuff. So in the interest of starting off this series right and going down the best road I can, let me give you one quick one-liner. One quick one-liner that I think captures my motivations, and here it is. God doesn't want to get your stuff. He wants to make sure your stuff doesn't get you. Ooh, there it is, right? Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. God doesn't want to get your stuff. He just doesn't want your stuff to get you. He doesn't want to get your stuff. Like his streets, come on, it's been said, are made of gold. His house made of jewels. That's a way of saying he's way more wealthy than you are. He doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't want your stuff. He just wants to make sure your stuff doesn't get you. So to help us see that, we're looking specifically this month in the book of Acts at four unique accounts of generosity. Luke and Acts, you should know, again, both written by the writer Luke, have almost a preoccupation with about how the Christian faith intersects our money and possessions, our financial life, and why that is, we'll see before we're through today. So this month, book of Acts, four weeks, four stories, Here we go with our first in Acts chapter 2. Here's our reading. Verse 37, now when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the reading of God's holy word today. All his people said, amen, amen. Yeah, this section we just read serves us the first snapshot of a simple historical fact that over the first three centuries, the Christian faith exploded into the world practically ex nihilo, out of nothing. Though it was marginalized, persecuted, faced extermination from multiple regimes and emperors, it nonetheless grew so fast, we know this, it pushed out the Greco-Roman worldview. It overturned, ended its idol worship, and came to be the dominant faith and cultural force in the world. How? How did a group of people with no money, no rights, no power turn the world upside down? This passage shows us they began to do all of that through these three words. We're going to take a look at in turn through these three words, difference, devotion, and descent. They turn the world upside down through difference, devotion, and descent. Let's look at each of these one by one. Here we go. Number one, the word difference. Difference. That is to say, what the kids say today, Acts 2 Christians were just built different. There you go. All right, you're catching on. They lived a different kind of life. And as a result, we read it, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what was so different? Well, you can see at least four things outlined here. There were miracles and wonders. Radical generosity, deep community life, and care for the poor. You're like, well, what's so different about that? Like, you know, folks, lots of folks believe in those things today, do those things. Well, let me try to do an almost impossible task and lift us up out of our cultural moment for a moment and peer into the past to see the difference, all right? Kenneth Scott Lateretti, he was an American historian. He wrote more than 80 books and specialized in Christian history. He wrote this. He said, quote, many, excuse me, more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. 
The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. Christianity drew the lowly and unlettered. It also developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas two of its main rivals were primarily for men, and the church welcomed both rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. The question must be raised, why did this unprecedented comprehensiveness come to appear first in the world in Christianity? It's a great question. And the answer to that question will come in our last point today. I'm not going to answer that right here. Yeah, I just want to keep you hanging on. But let's go back to the first century world Lateret describes. I want to simmer and sit with the essence of what he said for a second. Let me give you three things, Dr. Tim Keller notes, that were different about the Christian faith that we take for granted today. First of all, the idea that you should love your enemies instead of killing them before they killed you that was different. I mean, even in the Hebrew scriptures, you can go back and read about King David, Samson, all the cycles of revenge ancient peoples engaged in. But like, not killing your enemies? Like, you can't do it at all. Like, you got to forgive them? Hmm? That was radical. That was offensive. And in certain parts of the world today, still, it's a deal breaker when it comes to Christian faith. Second, the idea that you ought to care for the poor. That was Different. A few other faiths, yeah, talked a little about care for the poor, Judaism being the prime example, but there was nothing like what we see here in Acts chapter 2 onward, nothing like this before the coming of Christ and the advent of the church. Christians, more or less, you may know this, invented hospitals, orphanages, Romans practiced infanticide, but the church, no. They said, look, they looked square at Luke 9, the parable of the Good Samaritan. They said, we will house and raise your babies. We will pay to care for what you've left for dead. And third, the idea that every single person has rights as a human, that was different. Every person deserves to be treated rightly and fairly, not wrongly and unjustly. That came directly from the Christian faith. A man by the name of Luke Ferry, he, L-U-C, by the way, because he's French, a French atheist writer and professor, wrote a philosophy book called A Brief History of Thought, and in it he says this, quote, the idea that the moral worth of a person does not lie in his gifts or natural talents, like what you can do, how good you are, what you can produce, is a notion which Christianity gave to the world and which many modern ethical systems would adopt, <coughs> slash steal, for their purposes. It would be ridiculous to try and pass from the Greek experience to modern philosophy without any mention of Christian thought. See, we take for granted universal human rights, but pre-Christian culture scoffed at the idea. Why? Well, they believed only the talented deserved that. Only the strong should triumph, but Christianity said no. The unlovable and the poor have dignity as well. Again, these sound normal to you now, but then they were outrageous, ludicrous, unlivable, went against nature because they were simply Different, yeah. Acts 2 living was so different, Luke had to write it down. So that's number one. 
Number one, the early church changed the world simply by being different. You say, cool, great, fine, knew most of that already. All right. And we're every group is different. Hmm? I mean, like every faith is different in some way. What made Christian difference different? Hmm? What made Christian difference different? Well, what made their difference different was this. Number two, it's the word devotion. Devotion. You can see that word right here. It's the key to the whole section. It says, and they devoted themselves. Your translation may say, they gave themselves. Why? Well, what does it mean to devote? In both Old and New Testaments, devote just means to give away. Here they gave themselves. They devoted themselves. Why? Verse 46, they had glad and generous hearts. In other words, what defined the difference, what sat at the center of each Christian cultural marker was generosity. Generosity. A man by the name of Lucian of Samosata, your favorite Greek writer and mine. Lucian of Samosata was a Greek satirist. He enjoyed ridiculing people of faith, the supernatural. He was basically a second century atheist stand-up comedian. Look him up for yourself. Here is what he pointed to as something to be ridiculed about the Christian faith. He said this. Their founder, Christ, taught them, again, he's saying this with incredulity, taught them they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy. They view their possessions as common property. He's basically saying, can you believe it? These humans treat other humans like family. Who does that? And this is crazy. They're generous with each other. I mean, who lives like that? Who just gives their money and stuff away? And the answer is Christians. Christians. Christians do. When Carrie and I were first married, uh, we were campus missionaries raising our support. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Except we weren't very good at it, which means we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> so it goes without saying, we didn't have a lot. When we got married, she, rightfully so, made me throw away all the old and ratty furniture I had. Like where your roommates sleep on the couches, and I was going to bring that into our apartment. She said no. The nerve, right? And so we had to start from scratch. And so for the first few months of our marriage, true story, we sat on metal folding chairs. That's all we had. We ate our first meals on the floor. As she put it, the budget for the furniture, $0.05. That's how much we had. But we did manage to save enough from some gifts at our wedding to buy a single spectacular piece of furniture. Oh, yes. It was the world's most beautiful sofa. And it was so lovely, she gave it a name. She nicknamed it Samuel. Like Sammy the Sofa, yeah. Uh, Carrie had worked for the sofa store back in L.A. a few years before, and she knew her way around a good sofa. This one was a good one. It was a lovely chocolate color. It was velvet-colored, had down-filled cushions. Its frame was made of kiln-dried wood. You've seen I learn all the terms here, kiln-dried wood. It cost a fortune, but she talked me into it, and it became part of the, the lore in our relationship. And she's a writer and an author, and in one of her books, she tells the story about the speech she gave me in the sofa shop. Here's what she said. She says, my speech in favor of buying Samuel involved the following arguments. 
That sofa would last forever because I would vacuum, fluff, and flip the cushions weekly. We would raise our future children to love Samuel the sofa like a part of the family. If Morgan agreed to the sofa, I would be buried in a sofa-shaped coffin someday, wrapped in the loving memories of our family cozied up on Samuel for family movie nights, Super Bowl parties, and epic The Floor is Lava game marathons. Yes. Well, how do you resist that, right? So we bought the sofa. I never regretted it. It was awesome. It put everything else in our little apartment to shame, basically because we had nothing else. But anyway, and then one day, one day soon after that, we heard, like you're hearing now, a message in church one Sunday about generosity. And I kid you not, in the middle of the message, this thought came to me. You should give your sofa away. Give yourself away. I was like, that cannot be Jesus talking to me right now. Like, get thee behind me, Lord. You know, I'm trying to listen to your word right now. Stop talking to me so I can hear your word. But the thought gripped me. It wouldn't go away. You should give away your sofa. And there was a specific name attached to that directive because there was someone that I knew needed a sofa. But I thought, there, there is no way. Carrie is going to go for this. She's going to think I was just mad about having to get the sofa in the first place. Like, I'm getting her back for it. Like, this is some passive-aggressive way of working out my anger about it and spiritualizing the whole deal. But after the service, summoned up my courage, got in the car, and I said it. I think we're supposed to give away our sofa. Now, remember, we didn't have two sofas. We had one. It was, to paraphrase God's word to Abraham, if you know the story, it was our sofa, our only sofa, only sofa. So if we gave our only sofa, we would now have, come on, no sofas. That's, that's how math works. And so I told her who I thought we were supposed to give the sofa to. And her face went all kind of strange and went kind of pale. And I thought, well, this marriage was fun while it lasted. <laughs> but she said right back, she said, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. In the middle of that message, she said, I feel like God told me the same thing. We're supposed to give the sofa away. And she heard the same name of the same person to give the sofa to. And it was, it was bonkers, but, but we did it. We gave it away. And it was a whole lot of work to get that thing loaded. Maybe a tear or two was shed waving goodbye to Sammy to give it to another person in another city. And then we came back home. And we started eating our meals on the floor again. Yeah. But you know what? We're glad to do it. Glad to do it. Because you know what? It's just a thing. It's just a thing. Now, it may be a, you know, velvet-colored, kiln, you know, dried wood thing, but it's still just a thing. But you know what? Not long after that, about a year or so later, maybe a little less, when we desperately needed a car, some kind people from our church came over to dinner, told us they had been praying for us, and they wanted to know if they could give us their, just a couple years old, Lexus SUV. Would we like it? Yes. So we said, let me pray about it for a second. Yes, we would like it. And after we picked our jaws off the floor, we said, yes, we gladly received that car and drove it through four kids and many miles till it died and breathed its last breath right out here on 183. God be praised. Rest in peace. You know, that car changed our lives. It changed our lives. Now, I'm not sure how God worked all that out. We did not give a sofa to get a car. But for us, we found out this was true. You cannot outgive God. 
You cannot outgive God. Here's the point. Giving, generosity, devotion are signs of a heart that have been changed by the grace of God. Richard Hayes, in his Christian ethicist, put it like this. He said, possessions in Luke Acts function as symbols, look at this word, of response to God. Zacchaeus' uncoerced generosity is a sign of repentance and faith, whereas the hesitant stinginess of the rich young ruler, or worse, the dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira betrays an unrepentant heart toward the grace of God. Acts 2 Christians were different because they were devoted. They were generous, but they weren't just devoted to any old thing. Like they weren't just sitting around saying, hey, you know, hey, while we're being persecuted, we should just go ahead and develop the greatest single humanitarian organization the world's ever seen. No, they didn't do that. Inside their devotion, what gave rise to their difference was this thing, one thing, one thing alone. Number three, the word dissent descent. Look at what kicks off the whole section here. This is the, this is the climactic moment of Pentecost. That's, that's day one, ground zero of the first church. This is what happens, verse 37. Now when they heard this, this is Peter's sermon about Jesus. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So let's ask, what kicked off this world-changing moment? What was Peter's message about? Was it about, you know, you should really focus more on your self-care. You know what changed the world? If you had a fixation on living your best life now. No. What set the church on its path to its greatest moment of cultural influence? It says these men and women were cut to the heart, cut to the heart. Their hearts were lowered. There was a descent because sometimes to heal the world, God's got to cut your heart wide open first. These people, they were lowly of heart. They repented and then they went even lower. Then they were water baptized. They were lowered down into water. Their hearts went down. Their bodies went down. All marks, not of ascent, not of increase, but of descent and decrease before they ever transformed an empire. Before they ascended, there was first a great descent. Why? And the answer is, come on, think. Think about it. When Jesus Christ came into our world, what did he do? He, come on, descended from heaven. He gave up his throne, his chocolate-covered, kiln-drying wood, even better throne, right? He gave up his rights, and he prayed stuff like this, Father, for their sake, I sanctify myself. This means to give oneself fully to God. See, he's saying, God, Father, for their sake, for the sake of others, I give myself fully away. And he went to the cross, and he died. He descended to the grave. And then when you look back and you read over the course of Christ's life, you see this was always his plan. This was always his direction. He was always headed downward. How could he do all of this, live like this? Just because generosity, self-giving is true spiritual reality. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully like this. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm 
of all creation and all being. For the eternal word, that's Jesus, gives himself in mortal sacrifice. And that not only on Calvary, for when he was crucified on Calvary, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, what he had done at home in glory and gladness. From before the foundation of the world, Christ surrenders begotten deity back to begetting deity in obedience. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. See, it's a fancy way of saying Jesus could give himself on the cross because he had been giving himself away within the Trinity from forever. Christians believe, oh, come on, our God is triune, one God in three persons who from forever have been honoring one another, pouring love into one another, lowering themselves before one another. Descent based out of love for the other is true spiritual reality. It is true love. See, for Jesus, the cross was just muscle memory. He could do it here because he had done it there He gave on the cross because he had been giving within the Trinity. But not only that, he gave, yes, because he loved. But here's the thing. He also gave because he had been loved. Because he knew he had been loved. He gave because he had been loved. Listen, you only don't give, won't give, if you don't know you're loved. You don't remember your love. And for the first Christians, they saw Christ. And they could give because they saw God had given to them and loved them first. <laughs> the generosity, not just of God, but the generosity within God had saved them. Jesus descended, yes, but he was raised. And they believed the same thing would happen to them, therefore, even if an empire put him under. And when this generous gospel exploded in their heart, the same generous gospel exploded in the world as well. Here's a thought. They were glad to give because giving always brings gladness. Glad to give because giving always brings gladness. Let me apply this quickly in three ways. Just begin to close here. Quickly, an application for three groups, non-Christians, Christians, and for all of us today. First, if you're not a Christian today, let me just press on you to be honest about what you just heard. That is... I hope you wouldn't just shrug it aside and say, oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah, the Christian faith gave us hospitals and orphanages and human rights. Sure, that came from Jesus. Yeah, I believe in that stuff, but I don't want to believe in the one who gave them. That's not, sorry, intellectually consistent. Listen, the same Jesus who insisted all have dignity is the same one who said no one comes to God except through him. Was he telling the truth about one and lying about the other? Well, why should you believe him at all then if he's lying? Was he lying when he said all have dignity and are worthy of love, including you? Or was he lying when he said he was the only way to God? I would say Jesus is a consistent truth teller and lied about neither. Second, for Christians here today, let me lean on you for a second. Uh, in this way, you know, there's talk in our culture. You may hear this from some from some who bear the name of Christ. And there's a lot of talk about gaining power, taking over, owning this group, owning that group. Does any of that sound like Acts chapter two? Hmm? If generosity and forgiveness is what changed the world then, why would 
dominance and power seeking change the world now? It can. Of course, we should. We must be involved in every sphere of life, in the public square, in the political square, to be salt and light. We should, must vote. Without Christ, things decay. But as we do, do we move into those places from a posture of ascent or like Christ, descent? Do we move into our culture with acts to difference and devotion? And third, third for all of us here today, would you pray a simple prayer with me? I'm going to ask you to pray out loud a one-sentence prayer in just a moment. I'm going to ask you, so I'm going to forecast it here, no secrets. I'm going to ask you to help, ask you to ask God to help us be a glad and generous people. And if that makes you nervous, praying a prayer from a pastor on a stage about generosity, let me just say what I always say, and I know some people may not like that I say this, but I don't care. I don't care, all right? If you don't trust me, you don't trust us or this church, then don't give here. Like, for real, don't do it. But for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the generous gospel in God you say you believe, and for Christ's sake, please give somewhere, all right? But here's the prayer. Let's pray this, and we'll pick up next week, more or less, where we just left off. Here's the prayer. Would you pray this? Um, I'll read it first, and then you'll pray with me if you'd be so kind. Here's the prayer. God, help me through Christ to have a glad and generous heart. That's it. Not so painful, right? All right. We can do this. Would you pray this out loud with me? Yeah, here we go. God, help me through Christ to have a glad and generous heart. Yeah, one more time. God, help me through Christ to have a glad and generous heart. Should be singular. Sorry about that. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for this. Lord, let our difference, let our devotion and our descent be markers of us as your people, individuals and corporately as well. Lord, and through that, may there be, yeah, an explosion of faith. May you add to our number daily those who are being saved. Would you allow for all these things, Lord, miracles and wonders, deep community life, generosity, care for the poor to be markers of our self-giving. Done in your name. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Pastor Bob. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.